0: To Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories from the 70s and 80s, from fondly remembered to obscure, short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. I'm your host, Chris Cooling. Subscribe to Forgotten TV on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or any podcast app. Or ask Alexa to play it for you. Alexa, what is Forgotten TV? Forgotten TV is the best podcast on the internet. I knew it. In episode 11, we considered how in the mid-1960s, American Saturday morning network TV shifted away from live-action children's programming to a nearly all-animated schedule. Animated characters like Johnny Quest, Space Ghost, Spider-Man, the Herculoids, Birdman, Young Samson, and even Superman started to fill the airwaves alongside Bugs Bunny and Tennessee Tuxedo. The dominance of superhero-type shows on Saturday morning became the subject of some controversy. In an era when the Vietnam War was airing live on weeknight news, the president of the PTA made the proclamation. Television cartoons are worse than immoral. They are full of horror and violence and negative values. As part of the aftermath of the domestic social upheaval also taking place, TV networks were under enormous pressure to scale back on the animated violence from groups like the PTA the newly formed ACT, or Action for Children's Television, and from frequent articles in everything from TV Guide calling out weirdo superheroes and monster cartoons to Red Book Magazine, which featured an article which claimed the Herculoids had a terrifying viciousness that goes beyond anything else I'm aware of on television. ACT was also critical of the commercials on Saturday morning and wanted networks to reduce the number of them, as well as put bumpers between the programs and commercials, clearly identifying when the televised content was switching from the show to an ad. In response, Fred Silverman and other executives at the TV networks began to lay down the banhammer on Saturday morning superheroes, and in the fall of 1969, only The Adventures of Superman remained. Ironically, not even a decade later, these same shows would air every afternoon in TV syndication and a new generation of kids would watch them every day after school. Anna Barbera's World of Super Adventure featuring the most fantastic collection of spectacular superheroic stars ever assembled. They will take you on adventures in space meeting strange creatures to exotic lands and fantastic flights of fancy, to jungle planets and mysterious invaders, to prehistoric times and super forces, to modern winged Avengers, to giant, terrifying creatures against primitive power. So, in a politicized move to fill Saturday morning with less offensive, non-violent programmings, networks began airing cartoons with lighter fare, such as The Archie Show, The Hardy Boys, and Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, as well as introducing interstitial programming, such as In the News and Schoolhouse Rock. A four-and-a-half-hour programming block is a lot to fill, so ABC started looking for more content to fill these time slots. What if there was a way to reuse popular existing properties and characters viewers would already be familiar with? CBS had done it before over a decade earlier with The Lone Ranger. Thus, the idea was resurrected of creating an animated spin-off. This time of popular live-action sitcoms and family-friendly adventure shows, more of these were produced than you probably remember, and on this episode we will trip through the seventies with sixteen animated spin-offs of regular live action TV shows, considered in air date order, and it all starts with the ABC Saturday Superstar movie. Whee! <laughs> the, Saturday Superstar, Saturday Superstar, Saturday Superstar movie. the ABC Saturday Superstar Movie was a series of 20 one-hour animated made-for-television films that started in the fall season in 1972. Intended as sort of a movie of the week for kids, these movies were produced by a variety of production companies, including Hanna-Barbera, Filmation, and Rankin-Bass. They would take known existing cartoon properties, such as Yogi Bear, Popeye, Daffy Duck, and the Groovy Ghoulies, and flush them out into a one-hour program. More often, though, they would take existing live-action shows that had a popular run and adapt them into an animated program. Ten of the twenty Saturday Superstar movies were these animated adaptations. This program thus served as a testing ground for what animated adaptations could be fleshed out into a series. And indeed, a couple of them were made into a series. The first Saturday Superstar movie kicked off the first show we will consider. Meet three sisters, now meet their brothers. Greg's the leader and the good man for the job. There's another boy by the name of Peter. The youngest one is sisters they're all quite pretty first there's marcia with her eyes as sparkling blue then there's Jen the middle one who's really groovy and sister cindy too let's get set now for action and adventure as we see things we never saw before It was 1972, and The Brady Bunch was entering its fourth season on Friday nights. Show creator and executive producer Sherwood Schwartz approached Filmation Studio about the creation of an animated series featuring the Brady Kids. Filmation agreed, and TV history was made with the Brady Kids. This was the first animated adaptation of a live action TV show in the 70s, and it served as the prototype for the many animated spin offs to follow, as we'll see. The Brady Kids omitted the parents and Alice characters and inexplicably presented just the adventures and singing of the kids. Barry Williams, Maureen McCormick, Christopher Knight, Eve Plum, Mike Lookinland, and Susan Olson all initially voiced the characters. Although, due to a contract dispute, three of them were replaced for the much shorter Season 2. Producer Lou Scheimer's son, Lane, then provided the voice for Greg, his daughter Erica, the voice for Marsha, and director Hal Sutherland's son, Keith, voiced Peter. Animal characters were added in the form of Moptop the dog, Panda Cubs Ping and Pong, and Marlin the magical talking bird. These additional voices were provided by Jane Webb and F Troop's Larry Storch. Much of the time, the kids hung out in their absurdly large treehouse, and stories ranged from the mundane to the fantastical and would include time travel, ghosts, aliens, magic and superheroes. Superman is featured in one episode and Wonder Woman in another. This is notable because this was a year before Super Friends, making this the first appearance of Wonder Woman on television, animated or otherwise. Future animated spin offs typically followed this template of focusing on younger characters, introducing fantastic elements into the show, and depicting things impossible to do in live action at the time as well as having the kids perform musical numbers, which filled time and enabled the animators to endlessly cycle the same movements of the kids playing their instruments in front of rotating background colors. Of course, this would lead to a host of Brady spin-offs that would continue through 1990, and at some point, I'll have to do a show on these. The Brady Kids ran for two seasons and 22 episodes, and was released on DVD in 2016. Alright. Soft and sweet, wise and wonderful, who are mystical, magical nanny. Since the day that Nanny came to stay with us, fantastic things keep happening. The fourth movie presented on The Saturday Superstar Movie was Nanny and the Professor. Yes, Phoebe Figalilli actually got two animated outings on the Saturday Superstar movie as Juliet Mills, Richard Long, and the whole cast returned for these two animated one-shot specials by Fred Calvert Productions. If you recall the original, the cheerful British nanny helped the Everett family with possibly magical abilities such as seemingly reading minds, seeing the future, or making fortunate coincidences happen. Taking a cue from the Brady kids, Nanny actually openly performs magic in these versions. The first airing September 30th, 1972, which features a story about a mysterious micro-dot and the struggle to protect and deliver it to the proper authorities. Nanny returned in Nanny and the Professor and the Phantom of the Circus a year later. This is one of the more obscure spin offs on this list, and these possibly never aired again. This was definitely the pre VCR 1970s, and I can find no recordings of these airings. <laughs> Number 3, premiering November 11, 1972, as the 10th Saturday Superstar Movie, was Lassie and the Spirit of Thunder Mountain, which served as a pilot for Lassie's Rescue Rangers, which began airing the following September. This was the latest adaptation of the Lassie franchise. Previously, it was a live action show, the fifth longest running show ever on TV with an incredible 19 seasons, from 1954 to 1973. As far as number of episodes, it is in third place, after The Simpsons and Gunsmoke, with 591 episodes. Before that, Lassie was the subject of seven feature films, which were based on a 1940 novel, which was fleshed out from a 1938 Saturday Evening Post article which itself was an adaptation of an 1859 short story. Got all that? Lassie's Rescue Rangers was produced by Filmation, directed by Hal Sutherland, and featured the voice talents of Hal Harvey, Ted Knight, Erica Scheimer, Lane Shimer, Keith Sutherland, Jane Webb, and Lassie, of course. In this version, Lassie lived with the Turner family near Thunder Mountain. Ben Turner was a forest ranger at the Thunder Mountain State Park, and along with his wife, Laura, and their children, Susan, Jackie, and the always serious-looking Ben Jr., they formed the Forest Force, a ranger rescue group whose job it was to protect the park, but also keep visitors safe. Lassie headed up the rescue rangers, Old Toothless, a harmless mountain lion, Edgar, a crow, Groucho, an owl, Fastback, a turtle, Robbie a raccoon, Musty a skunk, and an unnamed rabbit. The rescue rangers often worked in conjunction with the Forest Force. Also working with the Turner family and Lassie was Native American Gene Fox, whose vast knowledge of the forest was a great asset to the Turners and Lassie. The Forest Force had a cool amphibious helicopter. The background music heard during episodes of Lassie's Rescue Rangers may seem familiar, We'll revisit this topic later in this podcast. As with other Filmation projects, each episode was followed up by a public service announcement about environmental concerns. Sadly, I could find none of these PSAs. Lassie's Rescue Rangers evidently wasn't very popular, with the annoying self-appointed TV watchdogs, the National Association for Better Broadcasting, who released a statement declaring it the worst show of the season. Lassie trainer Rudd Weatherwax reportedly said, That's not Lassie. That's trash. Lassie's Rescue Rangers ran one season and 15 episodes. The 13th movie on the Saturday Superstar movie was Tabitha and Adam and the Clown Family, a spin-off of Bewitched, the classic fantasy sitcom. The children from Bewitched, Tabitha and Adam, were now young teenagers, and they had to use their magical powers to assist their cousins to save a circus. This was an intended pilot for a series that never materialized, Pat Harrington Jr., Don Messick, Hal Smith, and Judy Strangis all provided voices. This was another obscure one-off presentation. This aired December 2, 1972 from Hanna-Barbera. But this wasn't the first time characters from Bewitched appeared in animated form. In a 1965 episode of The Flintstones, titled Samantha, Darren and Samantha Stevens made an appearance. Hanna-Barbera also produced the original animated opening segment to Bewitched. The song presented, Love the World, was recycled from a 1970 Scooby-Doo episode. I actually tracked down an incredibly rare video recording of a 16mm print of this, complete with place commercial here frames. There was no intro or opening segment, it just started. I can see why it wasn't made into a series. A Hanna-Barbera production, it seemed very derivative of Scooby-Doo in several ways, and any perceived capital of the bewitched property didn't really carry over into this presentation. The Saturday Superstar Movie will continue following Station ID. Let's have a good G.I. Joe adventure team. At dawn, G.I. Joe heads across the desert in search of the mysterious missing mummy. Suddenly, an earthquake. No time to lose. Joe must get the mummy out. Can G.I. Joe win his race against time? You find out. The secret of the mummy's tomb. From G.I. Joe. girl that I could call that girl Every girl I ever found could never be that girl She had to have certain qualifications No one could live up my expectations I could never find a girl until I met that girl and bright, I found a girl to be that girl. But she looked at me, sweetly said to me, You are definitely not that guy. Now I'm back to looking once again for that girl. That girl. Number five on our list, and the 17th movie on the Saturday Superstar Movie was That Girl in Wonderland. Airing January 13, 1973 and produced by Rankin-Bass, this is likely the most obscure entry on our list, in which Marlo Thomas voices Anne-Marie from the ABC sitcom That Girl. The original That Girl ran on ABC from 1966 to 1971. If you recall, That Girl was Anne-Marie, an aspiring but only sporadically employed actress. Trying to make it big in New York City, and took a number of offbeat temp jobs to support herself in between her various auditions and bit parts. This was one of the few entries of the Saturday Superstar movie that tried to appeal to girls watching on Saturday morning. In this presentation, Anne Marie daydreams, taking on the roles of fairy tale characters Alice in Wonderland, Goldilocks, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, and Cinderella with her dog, Freckle, in tow. It took a little doing, but I actually tracked down a copy of a recording of an actual airing of this. I suppose this special qualifies as animated. Barely. The animation is truly terrible. Freckle looked like he had insect legs, and the wizard's castle looked like they copied Vol from Star Trek. But it was a treat to watch it anyway, complete with the original commercials. This is another program that has never seen the light of day with any kind of video release. Somebody must have had a U-Matic machine to record this in the pre-VCR 70s. Leaving behind the Saturday Superstar movie for a bit and moving forward to the fall season of 1973, when the floodgates are opening as every network now was getting into the animated spin-offs, the next six entries all debuted September 8th, 1973. The spreadsheet sorted them alphabetically, so first, let's look at number six on our list, NBC's Emergency Plus Four. From Universal and Fred Calvert Productions that had brought us the Nanny and the Professor adaptations, Emergency Plus Four was the animated version of NBC's hit, Emergency, just starting its third season in primetime. Randolph Mantooth and Kevin Ty voiced their characters of paramedics John Gage and Roy DeSoto, who became the first adults caricatured for an animated series. The plus four of the series title referred to the four teenagers who joined the paramedics in each episode's rescue activities. Carol, Matt, Jason, and Randy inexplicably had their own ambulance and followed John and Roy on calls. In what now was becoming a TV trope of these shows, the teens had a trio of helper animals Flash the dog, Bananas the monkey, and Charlemagne the mina bird. Fire departments around the country screened episodes at fire prevention and safety seminars for children, and the series regularly offered first aid instruction. However, the show received some criticism from parents for placing its young characters in life-threatening situations. Emergency Plus 4 ran for two seasons and 23 episodes. It has never been released on video. Dogging it up right high on a curl. Not thinking about it, I'd be meeting a the girl. Then wham, I said, but that ball wasn't all. In a bottle was a chick only two inches tall. Out came Genie. Wow. Yeah. And Junior Genie Babu. On to number seven on our list, over at CBS, Hanna-Barbera was bringing us Genie, the animated adaptation of I Dream of Genie, which had finished its run in 1970. In this incarnation, Genie is a redhead, appears younger than the live-action character, and her magic is performed by her ponytail instead of by crossing her arms and blinking. She is found by teenage surfer Corey Anders after finding her bottle on the beach. Corey was voiced by Mark Hamill, and yes, that was him singing in the intro. Jeannie was voiced by newcomer Julie McWhirter. Jeannie fell in love with Corey and stayed with him, and to win his love, she tried to help him with his everyday situations. Jeannie was accompanied by apprentice Jeannie Babu. The character of Babu was later seen in Scooby's Laugh Olympics. Jeannie ran for one season and 16 episodes and the series has never been released to home video. But most episodes can be found on YouTube. Three, two, one, ignition, liftoff. The space shuttle Jupiter 2, en route from Earth to Saturn on a routine flight, is under command of Craig Robinson, a recent graduate of the Space Academy. It appears that we are lost in space. Number eight on our list, also airing September 8, 1973, over on ABC's Saturday Superstar movie, Was Lost in Space. In this animated special produced by Hanna-Barbera, the crew of the Jupiter-2 heads for a distant planet. But it was a different crew. Instead of Will Robinson and his family, we get Craig Robinson, fresh out of Space Academy, taking command of the Jupiter-2. Craig takes his younger brother, Link, along on a routine mission from Earth to Saturn to drop off geologist Dinah Carmichael. En route, the ship is battered by a meteor shower. Damaged, the Jupiter II is forced to land on an uncharted planet, where they meet two alien races, the Throgs and the Tyrannos. Dr. Smith was voiced by Jonathan Harris, and was the only character from the original program to appear in the special. The only other familiar character was the Robot, who this time was named Robon, and voiced by Don Messick. The spacecraft resembled a rocket instead of a saucer this time around, and Smith was a passenger rather than a saboteur. This, of course, would have served as a pilot had it been picked up for a series. This cartoon was included in the Lost in Space 2015 Blu-ray release. This was the last cartoon that Hanna-Barbera produced for the ABC Saturday Superstar movie, and the first cartoon in the second season of this series. In 2003, animator Scott O'Brien pitched an idea to 20th Century Fox to again revive Lost in Space as an animated series, this time using actual audio from the original show, synced to his stylized animations. He presented a -a three-and-a-half-minute proof-of-concept short film to Fox, but unfortunately, Fox did not go for the idea both the 1973 Lost in Space presentation as well as this short film are viewable on YouTube. <laughs> Number 9 on our list, also airing September 8th, 1973, CBS Infilmation Filmation brought us My Favorite Martians. A spin-off of CBS's earlier hit, My Favorite Martian. In this version, Tim and Uncle Martin return. And in an attempt to appeal to younger viewers, Uncle Martin's Martian nephew, Andromeda, nicknamed Andy, joins the cast. Andy only has one antenna, and thus lesser powers than Uncle Martin. They're also joined by their Martian pet, Oki, sort of a bouncing sheepdog with antenna. None of the characters were voiced by the original actors. Bill Bixby at the time was committed to his latest project, The Magician, and Ray Walston declined to return to the role. Jonathan Harris voiced Uncle Martin. Howard Morris was Tim O'Hara. And Lou Shimer's son, Lane, was Andy. Interestingly, the cartoon utilized a number of scripts from what would have been Season 4 of the original live-action show. The series lasted for one season and 16 episodes, but was never released to home video. Episodes are not easily found, but they are out there. Turning the channel back to NBC that same morning of September 8th, 1973. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Yes, it was Star Trek, this time in animated form. Now known as Star Trek, the animated series, but originally just Star Trek. The series was produced by Filmation. Now, a lot can be said about this series, enough to fill its own podcast. I'm going to mention some highlights and talk a little about the production, the music, the writers, and the stories. Star Trek had left NBC's airwaves June of 1969. That same year, Filmation had approached NBC about doing Star Trek as an animated series. But it wasn't until 1972 that they reached a deal with Gene Roddenberry and Paramount to begin production, right at the time when the live-action Star Trek was undergoing a surge in popularity in syndication. Remember, this was a time before home video, when the only way to watch a show again was to catch a rerun. Some local markets would save Star Trek for airing on the weekends. Others would strip it, running it five days a week at the same time each day. Star Trek syndicated reruns turned out to be very popular, and that would continue into the 1980s. NBC happily picked up the show from Filmation, and production could get underway. Possibly for the first time on Saturday morning the TV network would have no creative control over the show they were airing. Early on, the choice was made to bring back as many of the original cast and original writers, as well as input from Gene Roddenberry, to produce a sophisticated, high-quality show that was simply an extension of the live series. One of the first people brought on was Dorothy Fontana for story editor, she got many original series writers to come in and write scripts for the show, in the middle of a writer's strike, no less. While the writers couldn't write regular live-action television, according to Union Rules, they were allowed to write one script for an animated show. Fontana quickly drafted David Gerald, Samuel Peoples, Stephen Candle, and Margaret Armin to write scripts. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, and Majel Barrett were all brought back to provide voices. Notably absent was Walter Koenig. Instead of the character of Chekhov, the producers would rotate two new alien characters in his place, Lieutenant Eriks, an Edozian with three arms and three legs, and Lieutenant Imres, a female Cadian, a feline species. Walter Koenig was not forgotten about, though he was able to write one of the episodes. The entire cast recorded the first three episodes together, but that practice was quickly abandoned when it became too difficult to coordinate the schedules of seven actors. Characters and elements that were brought back for the animated show were Roger Carmel as Harry Mudd, Cyrano Jones and the Tribbles, the Guardian of Forever, Mark Leonard as Sarek, as well as the Shoreleave Planet there were some new elements added. Kirk's middle name of Tiberius is revealed. This time, the bridge had two entrances, something overlooked in the live series. The Enterprise's first captain, Robert April, was revealed. The Enterprise rec room was shown, and it was similar in concept to the holodeck that would later be used on Star Trek The Next Generation. Instead of the clunky spacesuits the crew would sometimes wear on the live series, the life support belt is used with its personal force field whenever the crew needed to be protected from an environment. Like many other shows did, this show did a public service announcement. It was for Keep America Beautiful. And here it is. Captain, our sensors indicate a huge whirling belt of alien matter approaching the Enterprise at warp 6. Red alert. Repeat red alert. Activate view screen, Mr. Sulu. What you're looking at, Captain, is the Romvian Pollution Belt, formed hundreds of years ago. Wasn't it before people became aware of pollution and began pointing it out? Exactly. Once enough people started pointing out pollution, the pollution stopped. Yes, Mr. Spott, people finally got the point. Instead of using the classic theme by Alexander Courage, filmation composer Ray Ellis wrote new music for the show. We heard that opening theme, but the background music composed for this show became iconic and is going to sound familiar to anyone my age that grew up watching cartoons. These themes and music cues were endlessly reused on other animated filmation shows, like The New Adventures of Batman, as well as their live action shows, like Jason of Star Command. I hinted at this earlier. If you watch other filmation shows, you will notice many of their music cues and themes reused. Ray Ellis was responsible for all of them. Prior to Star Trek, Ray Ellis had composed music for the 1960s Spider-Man animated series. This show had a long production schedule, from script writing to storyboarding, then voice recording and animation. Episodes took about three months to do, and were often worked on until the last minute, with film delivered on Friday for the Saturday airing. Sixteen Season 1 episodes were directed by Hal Sutherland and the shorter six-episode season two by Bill Reed. The series was well-reviewed. The LA Times said, NBC's new animated Star Trek is as out of place in the Saturday morning kiddie ghetto as a Mercedes in a soapbox derby. Don't be put off by the fact it's now a cartoon. It is fascinating fare. Written, produced, and executed with all the imaginative skill, The intellectual flair, and the literary level that made Gene Roddenberry's famous old science fiction epic the most avidly followed program in TV history. The Washington Post questioned whether the show might be too cerebral for the four to eight year olds watching, harking back to the original complaint NBC had given Gene Roddenberry upon viewing the first pilot of the live series, The Cage. In 1975, the series won the Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Children's Series. The other nominees were Captain Kangaroo and The Pink Panther Show. All of this series' episodes were novelized by Alan Dean Foster and released in 10 volumes as the Star Trek Logs. Star Trek, the animated series, is available on DVD and available to stream on Netflix and CBS All Access. The Saturday Superstar movie will continue following station ID. Yogi's gang comes to Saturday morning, starting in September on ABC. How do you make a zany shirt? Take an old shirt, take a boring shirt, but how do? with a Shirt Zanies kit from Arts and Crafts today. It has just about everything you need to express your own personality on a shirt. Except the shirt. And you don't have to stop at one or two shirts. You can spread the zaniness around. Shirt Zanies, new from Arts and Crafts today. Camping's fun, even for And now look. The Barbie Going Camping Set has a buggy and trailer that pops up into a tent. You can put Malibu PJ into her sleeping bag. Or, if it's chilly, put her inside the tent trailer. Even pretend she's cooking over her barbecue. So have fun camping, even indoors. The Barbie Going Camping Set with Dune Buggy Tent Trailer and Accessories. PJ doll sold separately from Mattel. Number 11, the last series that debuted on September 8th, 1973, also on NBC, was Hanna Barbera's The Addams Family. In this version of the 60s creepy sitcom, Gomez and Marticia Adams, their children, Wednesday and Pugsley, Grandmama, Uncle Fester, and Lurch, hit the open road to travel America in a creepy Victorian motorhome, complete with Widow's Walk and its own rain cloud. The family was joined by animal companions, Allie the Alligator, and Echo the Octopus. During the series, they traveled to New York City, Nashville, New Orleans, Chicago, Hawaii, Kentucky, Haiti, and the moon. Jackie Coogan and Ted Cassidy returned for the voices of Uncle Fester and Lurch, but none of the others did. Lenny Weinrib was the voice of Gomez. Janet Waldo was Morticia. And 10-year-old Jody Foster was the voice of Pugsley. Now, interestingly, this was not the first animated appearance of the Adams Family. On the third episode of Hanna-Barbera's The New Scooby-Doo Movies, Scooby-Doo Meets the Addams Family aired a year earlier. In that episode, John Astin and Carolyn Jones voiced their characters alongside Jackie Coogan and Ted Cassidy. The animated Addams characters would also appear in public service announcements for the Boy Scouts of America, featuring Pugsley as a scout. The four nutritious food groups then promoted by the USDA, as well as forest fire prevention for the United States Forest Service, like this one. Oh, it's a lovely night, Carita. Yes. And the campfire is too warm and cheerful. I think we should put it out. Smokey Bear says you should always put out your campfire. Very well, Wednesday. Get some water. First, we'll drown the fire. Then, we'll stir the coals. And drown it again. Is it out now, dearest? Dead out. Darling, what a lovely way you have with words. The Adams family ran for one season and 16 episodes. And actually received a DVD release in 2010. The Addams Family was revived again by Hanna Barbera in animated form in 1992, this time on ABC. Number 12, airing October 27, 1973, as the 19th movie on ABC's The Saturday Superstar Movie, was The Mini Monsters. (laughs) Yes, based on the original The Munsters that had aired on CBS in the 60s, The Mini Munsters was brought to us by Fred Calvert Productions. This one-hour presentation centers mostly around a teenage Eddie and his two cousins, Igor and Lucretia, who come for an unexpected visit. Together, the trio forms a band, of course, which sort of sparks the rest of the ragtag story involving the ghost of a funeral director who owned their iconic Munster coach hearse. Gangsters, as well as music-fueled engines, were all involved. The character of Marilyn is nowhere to be seen. Of the original cast, Al Lewis, Grandpa Munster, was the only actor to reprise his role for the animated special. Actor Richard Long, from Nanny and the Professor, and Henry Gibson, also provided voices. Richard Long's involvement may have had something to do with writer Don Nelson, who wrote eight episodes of Nanny and the Professor, as well as both of Nanny's animated outings. No indication is given as to why this is called the mini-monsters. The characters are not kids or younger versions. Eddie is now obviously older. The title just didn't make a lot of sense. This ties with the Nanny and the Professor outings as the most obscure on this list. This aired one time, and finding it in its complete original length is impossible, as no recordings or films seem to have ever surfaced. The only version of this to be found is of a really bad extended play recording of a 1980s airing where this was shortened to 30 minutes. Moving forward to the 1974 fall season... Cities rising in the sky, freeway traffic jetting up, future's here for us to see, it's 2200. Is it me or does this show seem really familiar? On September seventh, nineteen seventy-four, Hanna-Barbera brought us number thirteen on our list, Partridge Family, twenty-two hundred A.D. on CBS. And yes, for all practical purposes, this is the Jetsons with the Partridge Family. This show started as a proposed updated version of the Jetsons with aged characters. Elroy would be a teenager. Judy would have a job, much like Hanna-Barbera had done with the Pebbles and Bam Bam show. This was pitched to CBS's Fred Silverman, where he reportedly said, Get rid of the Jetsons, add the Partridges, and we'll give you the 9.30 a.m. time slot. The original live-action Partridge family had just ended its four-season run in March, and CBS was looking for a way to carry on the success of that show. So, Elroy became Keith, Judy became Lori, Astro was turned into a robot dog named Orbit. Add friends from Mars and Venus and we have our show. The resulting series was essentially the Partridge family set in the Jetsons' world. The family remained virtually unchanged from their live counterparts in personality and appearance, with the exception of Ruben, who ended up resembling an aged George Jetson. But we were given space-age fashions and instruments, and their school bus became a domed spaceship with the same color scheme the school bus had on the live-action show. There was no time travel involved. The family was simply presented as living in the year 2200. Danny Bonaducci, Susan Day, Suzanne Crow, and Brian Forster were the only ones to return and voice their characters. Susan Day had to step out after two episodes due to being cast in a film role. The voice talents of Joan Gerber, Julie McWherter, and former Mouseketeer Sherry Alberoni were called on to round out the cast. Shirley Jones has said she was never even told of the show's existence and had no recollection of any animated version of the series ever being produced. Most of the stories revolved around Danny. Danny joins a spaceball team... Danny uses an alien gadget to become invisible. Danny shrinks Keith down to miniature size. Danny makes Keith and a gorilla switch bodies. You get the idea. Like on the live show, the family would perform a song every episode. This was not the first time the Partridges appeared in animated form. The Partridge family had already been recurring characters on eight episodes of Hanna-Barbera's Goober and the Ghost Chasers the previous year. The animation was completely different, though. The Goober appearances were realistic caricatures of the characters. The 2200AD animation was more simplified and stylized. Sadly, the show didn't live up to the expectations CBS had for it. Partridge Family 2200 A.D. was on for one season and 16 episodes, and has never been released to home video, with the exception of two episodes included as extras on the 2005 Partridge Family First Season DVD set. However, some episodes can be found on YouTube. Also debuting September 7, 1974... Now listen to this story that we will tell to you. The story of the Minnow, five passengers and crew. With Gilligan aboard the ship, the Skipper by his side. An unexpected storm came up and tossed them with the tide. They found themselves a shipwrecked clan, lost on Gilligan's Isle. Gilligan and Skipper. The millionaire, his wife, the movie star professor, and Marianne began a brand new life. What creatures they encountered! What riddles did they face! What mysteries did haunt them in a strange but happy place? On the new adventures of Gilligan, Gilligan, all on Gilligans. Island. Filmation brought us number 14 on our list, The New Adventures of Gilligan on ABC. All of the characters from the original Gilligan's Island were included, and most of the original cast reprised their roles, with the exception of Tina Louise and Don Wells. Tina Louise was trying to distance herself from the Gilligan's Island role of Ginger, and Don Wells was in the Midwest performing theater and was not available at the time. Jane Webb provided both voices. To avoid any issues with Tina Louise over the use of her likeness, Ginger's appearance was changed to that of a platinum blonde. The overall storyline and plots were basically the same as the original live show and were far less fantastical than most Saturday morning adaptations. A first maid and his skipper set out on a three-hour tour with five passengers and end up stranded on an uncharted desert isle. This time, they were joined by Stubby, the monkey who is befriended by Gilligan. Behind the scenes, Filmation had tried for years to license Gilligan's Island as a cartoon series as early as 1971, but Sherwood Schwartz declined, as he would do the next two years. Gilligan's Island was huge in syndication at the time, and Schwartz was trying to revive the live-action show. Like Filmation had done with Shazam and ISIS, they added morals or educational tags at the end of the show, where Skipper and Gilligan would discuss whatever lesson they had learned that day. Why was this done so often? Well, remember the demands of the moral crusaders, the PTA, and ACT that led to this entire genre of Saturday morning TV? Part of the fallout of networks acquiescing to these demands was less commercial time, which resulted in more time to fill. Filmation had lengthened the songs on Fat Albert and The U.S. of Archie to accomplish this, and on Gilligan and other shows, they added educational segments or PSA tags. The series was fairly popular. Milton Bradley released a board game based on it in late 1974. The New Adventures of Gilligan lasted for two seasons and 24 episodes. Then, the show was rerun on Sunday mornings for another year, in 2016, The Warner Archive released the series on DVD. Moving forward a year to the fall season of 1975, The Odd Couple had just finished its five-season run in March of that year, and on September 6th, DePatty Freeling Enterprises brought us number 15 on our list, The Oddball Couple, on ABC. Here they are, The Oddball Couple, they're a couple, that's a couple of oddballs. Anything the oddball couple ever do becomes a series of foul balls. They're really just as opposite as broken and straight. And no matter where they're going, if there's one that's early, the other one is late. Talk about the oddball couple, they're a couple, that's a couple of oddballs. While the other one has got a very special talent for messing up the team. We're talking about the oddball. double, double there like and double, double, small small balls. Balls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eight balls. Felix and Oscar were reinvented as Spiffy the Cat and Fleabag the Dog, voiced by Frank Nelson and Paul Winchell. Also featuring the voice talents of Joan Gerber and Don Messick. Spiffy is a very orderly and polite cat who believes in cleanliness and organization while his roommate Fleabag is the exact opposite who is always rude, obnoxious, lazy and is always very disorganized and unorthodox. This contrast was carried to a ridiculous extreme in the show. Their house was one half mansion and one half dilapidated shack and their car was half pristine, half junker they had a secretary named Goldie Hound, a spoof on actress Goldie Hahn, who worked in the office they shared. The show consisted of two segments, lasting ten minutes each. This gag could only be carried so far. The only saving grace was the voice talent of Frank Nelson. If you don't know the name, if you grew up watching reruns in the 70s, you undoubtedly remember this guy. Mr. Yes! Yeah. Whether he was a ticket seller, a store clerk, a clothing salesman, he played the same type service industry professional who was doing you a favor by helping you out. He appeared in countless shows on Jack Benny, Make Room for Daddy, I Love Lucy, later on Sanford and Son, and he did quite a bit of voice acting work in the late 70s and through the 80s. Frank Nelson died in 1986 and was later honored on The Simpsons as The Yes Guy, voiced by Dan Castellaneta nine times. The Oddball Couple lasted one season and 16 episodes and is actually on DVD. Kino Lorber has released a number of the more obscure DePatty Freeling Enterprises properties in the last couple years, such as The Ant and the Aardvark, Tijuana Toads, and Roland and Ratfink. Also on September 6th, 1975, was the final animated spin-off on our list. The previous incarnation of this was a short-lived TV show that itself will undoubtedly be considered on a future podcast. That TV show was based on a series of five films, the first of which was an adaptation of a 1963 novel by Pierre Boulle. What was this show? Return to the Planet of the Apes. Thank you, Ted Knight. Yes, in 1975, NBC and DePatty Freeling Enterprises, or DFE Films, brought us Return to the Planet of the Apes with an awesome opening sequence with great, highly detailed still frames depicting characters and artistic interpretations of scenes from the movies. The Planet of the Apes films had run their course, and a short-lived live-action TV series adaptation of these movies was run on CBS in 1974. An unprecedented licensing campaign had also been taking place in the 70s. 20th Century Fox licensed around 60 companies to produce about 300 different Apes products. There were, of course, those Mego action figures and play sets, realistic masks, model kits, coloring books, book and record sets, trading cards, the Ben Cooper Halloween costumes. You could actually buy a Planet of the Apes pellet rifle. Amidst all this, Fox enlists DFE Films to adapt an animated version of Planet of the Apes. Unlike every version of Apes that came before that depicted a primitive ape civilization, this version more closely resembled the original 1963 novel and depicted a technologically advanced ape society, complete with automobiles, film, and television. This time, astronauts Jeff, Bill, and Judy crash land on Earth in the year 3979, where they find an Earth where apes rule and humans live in primitive conditions. Characters General Erko, Dr. Zaius, Cornelius and Zira, Brent, and Nova all make appearances. Surprisingly, except for a few standalone episodes, stories were serialized, which was highly unusual for this era, much less for Saturday morning. Voice talents included Austin Stoker, Richard Blackburn, Claudette Nevins, Philippa Harris, and Henry Corden. It was a little off-putting to hear the voice of Fred Flintstone come out of General Arco. One issue facing this production was how much violence could actually be depicted. In the films, humans were hunted, shot, trapped, dragged behind horses, and remember, the concern over violence was the big issue facing Saturday morning cartoons going into the 70s in the first place. NBC's guidelines were to not portray violent acts that could be copied by a six-year-old. So, guns, knives, clubs were off the table. Although the guerrillas carried guns, they never fired them. For a Saturday morning cartoon, this series was very adult in tone and storyline. The opening sequence depicted crucified upside-down apes, just like Brent saw in the mutant vision he was given in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Try getting away with that today. The show generally had intelligent, detailed stories, but was sometimes wordy and likely deemed too sophisticated for a juvenile audience. We only got a 13-episode season before the show was cancelled, with the storyline not resolved and the last episode ending on a cliffhanger. Return to the Planet of the Apes is available on DVD. After the 1975-76 TV season, things were quiet for a while on the animated spin-off front. But they would make a return in the 1980s. But as they say, that is another story. Next time on Forgotten TV... Join me for a special 20th episode of Forgotten TV as I examine the wonderful 1986 series Starman with Robert Hayes and Christopher Daniel Barnes. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with Filmation. Hanna-Barbera, or any TV network or production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making those audio clips possible. Tommy Retros blast from the past. Cy Emerson cartoons intros. The TV theme players topic. TV's greatest tune tracker. Eleven DB eleven. Jim's books and stuff. Mutley sixteen. Star Trek universe. Cabman cab. Grimbot two. Melody Cat nine eighteen. B M G, as well as the books. Lou Scheimer creating the filmation generation. Saturday Morning Fever, Growing Up with Cartoon Culture, and a special thanks to Meringue. A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV. If you like the show, please rate the show by giving it a star rating on iTunes or Stitcher. This small action goes a long way to promote the show to other listeners. If you're so inclined, please click through to Amazon on any link in the show notes or website. Those extra few dollars a month are used to obtain DVDs and equipment needed to produce the show. For content in addition to that presented in the podcast, like the Forgotten TV Facebook page or follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Those links are found at Forgotten.tv. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire podcast network where you can find other great entertainment podcasts. I'm your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV.